Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. Coming up on today's episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. The story that I've shared on Leaving Eden has been most parts of my life story. I think the the Russell Anderson story is kind of a, a weird and out there expression of what was so common for me growing up in the IFB. It's all a glaring symptom of a huge problem. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Sadie Carpenter. Sadie is the co-host of the immensely popular Leaving Eden podcast. And while Sadie has been very open about her experience growing up within the independent fundamental Baptist movement, there's one story in particular she has never shared publicly. We have a conversation about this particular experience and use it as a launch pad to have a broader conversation about the nature of grooming within the IFB. The organization RAIN, which stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, defines grooming as manipulative behaviors that the abuser uses to gain access to a potential victim, coerce them to agree to the abuse, and reduce the risk of being caught. Grooming often follows the pattern of victim selection, gaining access and isolating the victim, trust development in keeping secrets, desensitization to touch and discussion of sexual topics, and attempt by abusers to make their behavior seem natural. While Sadie's particular story did not end in physical abuse, a clear pattern of grooming did take place, leaving the door wide open to some very dangerous possibilities. Sadie believes her story is important and that many women who are raised inside the independent fundamental Baptist movement will likely identify with much of her story. Let's go ahead and get into my conversation with Sadie Carpenter. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent, fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Sadie, welcome to the show. Hello, and thanks for having me. Glad to finally be here. Finally, indeed. Yeah, it's been... Actually, I was surprised. So I thought that you guys had started your podcast like way before me. Mm-hmm. And I thought that it was like something that had been going for like two or three years before Preacher Boy started. And then I was looking at it started August. So like I started in January 2020 and then mm-hmm. August of 2020. 
your show dropped. So I've always respected you guys as the OGs of like the IFB <laughs> podcast. Um, but Which I guess is, uh, no, I that's guess hilarious <laughs> because when I started, I thought you were the OG and that you had been going for like years and years. And it wasn't until more recently that I found out that you only started a few months before we did. Yeah. We're but all you just got babies. To- we're all just bringing it out. You got to a million downloads a lot quicker than we did, and that didn't help with my inferiority complex. Well, as we're about to learn from today's topic, numbers are everything, and you should constantly brag about your numbers. Yes. um, (laughs) I'm curious, first and foremost, one, with what we're about to talk about, why were you choosing to use this platform to share when you do have a platform of your own? So you've got the Leaving Eden podcast, which anyone listening to this show would probably enjoy that show. Um, Why share this story here versus on your own turf? So the story that I've shared on Leaving Eden has been most parts of my life story. I've talked about almost getting expelled from Hiles Anderson College because of an illicit premarital side hug. Um, And I've talked about some really difficult things that I've gone through myself because of the independent fundamental Baptist movement, because of fundamentalism, and even because of some people within fundamentalism. But there are parts of my life that I've never shared on there because I don't want my platform to feel like a weapon to wield against anybody who's ever made me mad in my life. I don't want, I want my platform to be about the story of fundamentalism. And it, I look at it almost um, as an anthropological look at fundamentalism. And I never want it to feel like a weapon that I can wield against somebody who did me wrong or made me mad. And yeah. Yeah. there are just significant and isolated chunks of my life that I've never shared there and don't plan on. This story, I didn't think it needed to be shared. I was never planning on telling this story. And that my mind has been changed on that. And you and Rachel Peach were a little part of that. And Chad Harris, who we know from Shiny Happy People, was a big part of, of changing my mind and confirming for me that the story I'm going to tell today does need to be shared. But to me, it felt like it could be seen as using my platform as a weapon. This story, I think, fits in really well with your mission over here at Preacher Boys. And um, I think this is just the right place to tell it. I resonate a lot with that fear because I felt that way with my own platform is is I waited, I think, a year before I even really dove into like my own church background. And I think there's a I, – I don't think it's because it's wrong to do it, but I think both of us understand – the critics I sound like an IP pastor, the critics of us. But <laughs> we the were people, there. We know how they yeah. Right. They're gonna pick apart everything and and I knew early on if I said something about my own church, it would be like, oh, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Like this is just bitterness. This is just your way to go after them. And I think you're probably right in feeling the same way in that, you know, oh, you start a show, gain popularity. Now I have been empowered to go after these people, which in a way you have, and I think rightfully so in some ways, but I think showing that you're considering that like adds a little bit more weight to 
when you do choose to say something, <laughs> like when you're actually aware that that's something they may think. So I understand why you chose this platform, but I think it's also important for people who are listening to understand why you were so reticent to share this particular story. And so I think it would be good to kind of establish that at the beginning of the episode. So I'm not here today to tell a story of sexual abuse in the IFB. I'm here today to talk about grooming culture in the IFB and to talk about a story that I absolutely believe was grooming, even though it did not come to sexual abuse in my case. I thought for a lot of years, first, I thought that what I experienced with this man was normal. I thought it was just the way that people behaved because it was what I was so used to in the IFB. And there were so many other instances of me and friends of mine being groomed in the IFB by these older men. And once I came to the understanding that it wasn't what I experienced was not normal and was not okay and was grooming, I thought my story didn't matter because it was not a sexual assault story. I didn't want to take space from the many, many people who are telling these heartbreaking stories of sexual assault that is so, so common in the IFB. And I changed my mind because I realized that the kind of grooming that I experienced and that so many other people experienced is part of what enables the culture of sexual abuse in the IFB, the culture of cover-ups in the IFB. And I think that my story can really illustrate what that grooming culture is. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to touch on because it it's one of the most heated um, talking points, I think, when you get into these conversations is, okay, every church has you know a cultural problem or there's systemic issues of abuse or you know, every church is a powder keg ready to explode. You know, people take those things to mean that every church is inherently abusive. Every pastor is abusive. They label it broad, broad brushing. And I think the reality is, is that we're looking at, okay, if somebody with bad intentions walked into this environment, could they do something bad? And I think the answer in most IFB churches is an overwhelming yes. Like mm-hmm. the system is set up the behavior that is so normalized, it opens the door wide open for a bad person to walk in. And yeah, of course, if a good leader's in that position, nothing's going to happen. But all it takes is the next guy to come in. And I think that's where a lot of these conversations really rest. There's this really old IFB joke, and you've probably heard it. Um, Pastors used to joke about, we have a sign in the nursery that says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You ever hear that one? I've never heard that. (laughs) Maybe it's a Midwest IFB thing. But what keeps getting stuck in my head is um, we shall not all be assaulted, but we shall all be groomed. And Hmm. the more, just the more I've thought about this story and heard from other people who have really similar stories, um, some of whom I have permission to tell you a little bit about later, the more I think it becomes obvious that grooming is something that happens to everyone, every, Mm. especially every AFAB person, every person growing up as a girl in the IFB. And I think my story can illustrate that and shed light on that. 
before we dive into your specific experience, I think we need to build a picture of the person that we're talking about, which if someone saw the title of this episode or description, they already know, but they may not understand how large of a figure in the IFB world this person was. And I think on the show, we talk a lot about Hiles Anderson College, Mm -hmm. and Hiles tends to get most of the attention and probably desired most of the attention, but gets a lot of the conversation, talking points. Um, There's a lot of, um, you know, videos, focal point is on Hiles, but Anderson just kind of sits there in the background. It's just the next part of the name. But he was a really large figure within the independent fundamental Baptist world and specifically was a huge financial support to the Mm -hmm. IFB world. So before I let Russell Anderson speak for himself with his own stats, I'm curious when you describe him, how would you describe Russell Anderson to somebody who is foreign to him as a name and as a figure? So at the time that I knew him, he was a much older man. Um, He was in... I suppose his seventies when I knew him, he was what I thought at the time as a young child was incredibly wealthy, unimaginably wealthy. And I think his, his net worth topped out around 80 million, um, which, you know, in this economy in 2024, (laughs) but to me, you know, to me as a kid growing up in extreme poverty in the IFB, he was by far the richest person I had ever met. Um, he bragged a lot about how wealthy he was. Um, Anderson grew up very poor in Kentucky, worked in coal mines as a child, and then eventually built a construction and real estate empire in Michigan. And once he had acquired a lot of wealth, he made many donations, both large and small, to IFP institutions, churches, and particularly Bible colleges. To me growing up, if someone was making a hundred grand a year, they were the richest person ever. Mm-hmm. You know, which uh, in a hundred grand a year is not a small amount of money. Like that's great. <laughs> you know, that's a great upper middle class life. Maybe just middle class at this Depending point. Depending on where you inflation. live. <laughs> Depend, depends where you live. In in uh, Southern California, where I was growing up, it wasn't as wealthy as I thought it was at all. Um, but perspective on that was was so huge, and I think that is a big piece of this picture. Is like how powerful he appeared to be, mm-hmm. and in fact was because he was actually legitimately very wealthy. Um, the but richest, I wanted to cue yeah, up the richest guy in the IFB for sure. Um, I want to play a quick clip of him at Faith Baptist World Tomorrow of all places kind of sharing a little bit of his accomplishments and his own self-reported uh, deals and money and things like that. Yeah, when it starts snowing in Michigan, the Holy Spirit leads me to go and do missionary work. So, <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so made a lot of money in Waikiki Beach and sold one condo there and made a million seven hundred thousand. That's not bad for an old uneducated coal miner, is it? Huh? Million seven? That beats working for a living. But I gave it all to Jesus. I didn't take one cup of coffee out. And one day, one day I'll tell you this, since you've got me talking, made $8.6 million one day and never had a nickel invested and gave it all to Jesus too. I didn't take it. I gave it to Howells Anderson College about a year before Dr. Howells died. Amazing what God did through an uneducated coal miner. For years I begged God to show the world what he could do through an uneducated coal miner. 
that never went to college, but I went to the Bible and got knowledge. In 1999, I go and he said, God, you've showed the world now what you can do for an uneducated coal miner. Ten Bible colleges, about 1,500 churches now, about $40 million, 457 housing apartments paid for. And I said, God, I'm going to give it all back to you. And today I have two condos left out, 457 housing apartments, giving it all back to him. I got it in heaven. <laughs> and so, uh, and so I gave it all back to you. Now, I want, uh, if you just open doors for me, I'll go around the rest of my life bragging and telling what you did for an old boy from Kentucky that hadn't had a Budweiser in 56 years. That's <laughs> 85. Got a drink of the living water. And I haven't been thirsty for this lot since. So that's, uh, that's his kind of uh, spiel that he gives. There was a million examples of that exact <laughs> kind of diatribe. But according to his obituary, I mean, it claims hundreds of millions of dollars were given to uh, different ministry works, and he claimed 25 million souls had been saved as a result of his giving, uh, which I'll talk, I have a very interesting clip about how those numbers were uh, kind of pumped too. And uh, he helped co-found Hiles Anderson College, uh, helped Jeff Fugate start Commonwealth Baptist College, um, and it was said that 10 colleges and over 3,000 churches were started um, and hundreds of million dollars given by uh, Russell Anderson. So um, by no means a small player in that world. And of course, a uh, someone really loved by the guys who were getting these checks to start their ministries. Um, so taking aside from his, well, well first I want to ask you, do you think the amount of money he was claiming to have given was exaggerate at all? Or do you think he was legitimately waving these huge checks to these guys? I think it's plausible. I've never, I've never seen good proof. Um, and I have precisely half of an accounting degree. So I would be halfway qualified to look at that. Um, if there <laughs> right. were proof, I could look at it. I think it's plausible. I think he gets his numbers because of paying personal soul winners. Okay. So you do know about that. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that because it was a it was a carrot on the stick for me, um, for me hmm. like from my experience with him. Well, before we get to that, then, what was your first time becoming aware of him? Because I think we're gonna quickly, like we d- discovered before we hopped on, we're thinking in the same track. So I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. What was the first time that you became aware of him, and what's the first time that you actually personally met him? I think is a good starting point there. I was always aware of who Russell Anderson and Jack Hiles were. Um, My family was just a real big hacker family. (laughs) Um, I was born during my dad's last semester at Hiles Anderson College. Uh, It took him 10 years to graduate because of constantly getting financially withdrawn. They would tell him, live by faith, sign up for this next semester, even though you don't have the money. So he'd sign up, start a semester, run out of money halfway through, drop out, have to repeat the semester over and over and over again. And I was finally born during his last semester. He graduated from Hiles Anderson College in 1993 and started a church in his hometown of Mobile, Alabama. And my siblings were born while he, my mama, while my dad was pastoring in Mobile. We had pictures of Jack Hiles in our house. 
we had the little um, game that you showed on Let Us Pray with the the balls that you tilt <laughs> to yeah. get it in his eyeballs. Um, which I think I which I think I have in my desk somewhere right now. I never have it when I need it. You know, it's always sitting here. See, I you've keep, got one. I keep on my. Deck. I don't have the game. I have a hundred percent for Hiles button. Um, now it's going to drive me crazy. I keep my Fundy ephemera like right here where I record. It's it oh, works for me. There we go. I I've was playing the, uh, with one of those as a kid because my dad they was. Are, they are addicting. <laughs> one of the people, people like making the, that merch back in the eighties <laughs> and nineties. So I was always aware of who Jack Hiles was and who Russell Anderson was. These were stories that I was being told as a child, like as my bedtime stories, I was hearing about these guys in church. I was hearing about these people and J Frank Norris and Billy Sunday constantly. It was just the fabric of my life. So I, I always knew who he was. Um, I visited Hiles Anderson multiple times as a little kid with my dad, because he would go back to, visit people he knew, or we would drive through on the way to a speaking engagement that he had. Um, I traveled with him when he preached a little bit. So I was always in and, in and out of Hiles Anderson campus. I went there multiple times as a little kid. Um, and it was important to my dad that I knew the mythology of these men and mm-hmm. the mythology of Jack Hiles and Russell Anderson and these other people that he looked up to. So I don't remember a time where I didn't know who he was. I believe I met him for the first time around 2005 when I was 12. It could have okay. been, you know, a year earlier, maybe. What was your feeling medium for the first time? Um, so during this era, Russell Anderson would travel in, to different IFB churches around the country and he would speak there. And sometimes he would choose to give the church a bunch of money. He kind of adopted different churches around the country. And if he gave you a large amount of money, you were expected to show soul winning numbers and salvation numbers and baptism numbers and church membership numbers. He really wanted to see a return on his investment. And it was just kind of known that this was a thing that he did. He would travel and give people money. And um, if he liked you well enough, you might get some. So we had our first speaking engagement with him. I I would have been 11 or 12, roughly. So roughly 2004, 2005. And I remember he wanted to be picked up in our family car. He did not want a special vehicle. He booked Mm -hmm. his own room. So usually as a pastor's kid, if, if a pastor was coming to visit your church or a visiting preacher was coming to visit, you would book the hotel room for them. You would rent a car for them, or you would have somebody assigned to chauffeur them. You would go in their hotel room ahead of time and put out snacks and make sure everything was just right. And there was a whole procedure to it as a pastor's kid. With Russell Anderson, he did not want any of that. He wanted to have his own hotel room at a very upscale hotel in St. Louis. So 
you know, 15 minutes drive, but across state lines from where the church that I grew up in was. Um, and he wanted to be picked up specifically by the pastor and the, fa- and the pastor's family in the pastor's car. There was a hmm. very specific way that he wanted things done and you knew you did it his way or you were going to make him mad. And it was just, it's Dr. Anderson is coming. We got to do it his way. So my family went to pick him up from the airport and take him to this hotel in St. Louis. I remember my dad being incredibly particular. (laughs) Sorry, dad. Um, About cleaning our car as clean as it could possibly, as, as clean as a, rusty blue Aerostar van could possibly be. Um, And I'm presuming he wasn't usually this particular. Oh, no. He was – my dad was very, very, very neat freak, but this was a whole different level of neat freak. Like even for you, this is crazy. We got to – yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So um, the first time I would have met him would have been at the airport picking him up to take take him to his hotel in St. Louis. I don't remember if the first time the the first like weird thing that happened was in the car on the way from the airport, but I don't remember if it was this first time that I met him or the second time. With how particular he was about everything, did you feel that he was was he likable and amicable or was he very like hard note like what was the personality like as you're riding with your dad to go pick him up like did you like, what was he like? Like, was it like interacting with someone who thinks are on another level? Was he super like down to earth? Like what was kind of the vibe in that initial meeting? He was very jovial, very, um, almost a Santa Claus kind of personality in a lot of ways, because, you know, I can give you whatever you want and, and, um, very grandfatherly, very lots of jokes, always, always making jokes and then waiting for you to laugh and very much expecting to hear a big laugh out of you. Um, kind of talked a lot, kind of mile a minute, usually talking away and um, would usually brag about finances or possessions within 30 seconds of meeting you. I know on the first time I ever met him, he took off his watch when, when we got to the <clears throat> the restaurant where we were going to eat. He took off his watch and handed. He said, "Here, put out your hand." So I put out my hand, and he put his watch in my hand, and he said, "Now tell me, how does it feel to be holding sixty thousand dollars?" And <laughs> I just did not drop the watch. How did it feel? Um, heavy and scary. <laughs> and he would do that that little trick to. Pretty much anybody who served us at a restaurant, um, most people he met, I think, have experienced the hold my watch trick. You mentioned the first like odd thing, you know, um, and it was either the first or second time meeting. What was that first kind of odd interaction? And did you identify it as odd then or do you see it as odd now? So the first time I remember, huh, that was weird. Um, we were in the car on the way, probably from the airport to his hotel. And he showed me that he had his initials embroidered on the shirt sleeve of his shirt. And he said, here, touch the embroidery. And I was a good fundamentalist girl. I had been 
pretty well trained not to touch men for any reason. And he was insistent that I touch the embroidery on his shirt sleeve. And that's it. That's all that happened. And outside the IFB, that's nothing. But within the IFB, it felt weird. It felt significant. I was not comfortable. And um, I've heard from a friend of mine who had the exact same experience with him when she was a little bit older than I was at the time. And how old were you at the time? 11 or 12. During those first few visits to the church, did your church become one of his favorites? Did you did your church receive any benefit from that relationship? Um, and how often did he frequent the church from that point on? I think the last it's it's really unfortunate that my dad's not with us because he could have probably told me exact dates. Um, but I think the last time he came, I was about thirteen or fourteen, so he came at least three or four times in a two to three year time period. So every time he came, it was with the implication that if you do well enough this time, you might get to be one of the ones that he gives money to. Or Hmm. he's thinking about adopting our church and investing money in us, but we just haven't proven ourselves to him yet. And if you're good enough Hmm. this time, this is going to be the time he's going to give us money. This is the time he's going to change everybody's lives with his money. I'm going to get you back into today's episode in just a moment. But first, I want to thank the sponsor that is making today's episode possible. And that sponsor is Factor. Factor creates no prep, no mess meals. You can meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, no matter how many podcasts you're recording, going up and down the stairs, trying to take meetings, whatever you're doing, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. And I can say this from experience. They were kind enough to send me a couple of meals for this week, and I enjoyed one just shortly before reading this ad. And it is amazing. And with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert and stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. And these aren't meals that skimp on quality either. You've got things like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, and so much more. So if you want to try it, go head over to factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 and use code preacherboys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code preacherboys50 at factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Go check out Factor and now check out the rest of this episode. America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. 
I think he put 500 bucks in the offering plate one time. But hmm. we never became one of the churches that that he adopted or or actually sponsored or actually gave money to. And it was it was so much pressure on me as a kid because I thought the behavior of the pastor's kids was a metric that he used to decide whether to give people money or not. And I'm not 100% sure if that was accurate or if that was just my perception, having grown up as an IFB pastor's kid. But right. it's, it's is your church building clean? Do you have visitors? Is your special music good enough? Are your pastor's kids well-behaved enough? And it it was heartbreaking because – I was growing up in a renovated educational trailer on the back of church property that was not necessarily designed to be a home to begin with. Um, the pipes froze every winter and we'd be out of water. One time the ceiling fell right down out of the, you know, where the ceiling's supposed to be uh, onto my brother's bed in the middle of church. Um, my shoes didn't fit. My clothes were all hand-me-downs and we always had something to eat, but we often did not have enough to eat. Um, which is the life of a, of a pastor's kid at a really small IFB church. And it was yeah. just heartbreaking because every time he would come, it would be, this is the time we're going to impress him. This is the time he's going to write us that check. This is the time he's going to change all of our lives. And we're going to always have enough food to eat and good clothes to wear. And our church is going to succeed. And my dad's going to stop being so stressed out. And my dad's going to be able to afford his medication and not have to ration when you have to ration your meds mm. because you don't have no. health care and you can only afford so much. It was every time he came, it was just, this is going to be the time. This is going to be the time. This is going to be the time that he's going to give us all this money and everything's going to be okay. And we're never going to be this bad off again. And then he'd leave. And no. it just, it was heartbreaking to go through over and over again. No. Cause I always felt no. it was, maybe it was me. Maybe I wasn't good enough. Well, how often do you hear as a ministry kid, like you're a reflection of your parents and like people are watching and you, you know, you're the goldfish that people are watching in the bowl, like <laughs> yep. all, all that sort of stuff comes to mind. And that's going to be heightened when you feel like, again, when there's food insecurity, when there's financial issues, like every single thing you're going, why aren't we good enough? You know, mm-hmm. and it, it's, especially when there's a, such a clear, you mentioned earlier, like it's the carrot on the stick thing. It's like when there's such a clear carrot to be chasing, you know, mm-hmm. it's got to be frustrating to feel like you're on a treadmill, you know, kind of going in that direction. Um, so how did, how did your relationship evolve with Anderson over those next three years of visiting? Like, obviously internally you're stressing about these visits, but like, mm-hmm the more you're interacting, the more he's getting familiar with your family. Like how did that relationship evolve over time? So he always wanted to take my family out to eat and he always paid. Um, I remember one time my dad took us to a buffet at like 4 PM because the cutoff for paying dinner prices is 5 PM. And Anderson was, he thought that was so great. You're saving, Mm. you're watching out for my money. You know, you know, I'm going to pay for this, but you, Watched out for that. He loved that, loved that. Um, He always wanted to ride in our car. He didn't want to rent a car. He didn't want somebody else to pick him up. He wanted the pastor's family to drive him. And it 
became that he always wanted to sit next to me in the car. And I just noticed that this it, he always would just uh, um, either just scoot into the seat next to me or particularly request that he was going to sit next to me. And eventually after a few times of meeting him, he informed me that I was going to be his girlfriend. And I would have been about about 12 at the time. So what being his girlfriend entailed was that he sent me letters. He sent me postcards from his condo in Hawaii. He sent me a postcard that had a picture of the whole condo building that his condo was in. And he circled on the picture which one is his. Um, he sent me, I think, candy and, yeah, there, some candy from Hawaii when he went there. And um, he found out what my favorite fruit was. And at the time, I liked this fruit that was kind of hard to get in the United States. And he had it imported for me. Um, And then the next time he came back to our church, after he informed me that I was going to be his girlfriend now, he reframed. We always went out to eat with him and my whole family in my family car. That was what we always did. But now he had reframed this as we're going on a date and your family are the chaperones. What context did he – was this something that your family knew or was this yeah. something that he told you privately or is it something he told you in the car on the way from the airport? Like, Because th this is the thing I wish Rachel was here on this call for that reaction she gave when you last said Because you were saying you – She know, was very grossed we out. <clears throat> well, we did, we did an interview – we did an interview on your show together and afterward you were kind of saying, Hey, I'm thinking about sharing this and you're kind of talking and she's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like listening through some stuff. And then you got to this, the way that you just casually shared it here and her reaction was like, Oh my God. Like, like it, it's, and it is like when you hear that you're going, every alarm in your brain is like blaring. So my immediate thing is like, okay, well, this had to be something that was something he just told you. Like, there's no way other people heard this and thought it was normal. No, but he said it in front of the church. Oh. Yeah. I mean, he said it to me privately or semi-privately as well. I do not remember when the first time it came up was because sure. it didn't strike me as weird because it was the, the culture that I grew up in. <sighs> Eh, whatever. Some old guy wants to say I'm his girlfriend. Maybe that means he'll give my church more money. Whatever. Yeah. Well, I was going to say too, like culturally we give older men such a pass to be creepy mm -hmm. because they're old and it weirds me out <laughs> like as a father now too. It's like the just you hear things and you're like, oh, like like when you see when older guys see a little girl and they're like, oh, you gotta watch out for her, mm -hmm. and they're like, dad by a five. shotgun, yeah, and you're like, okay, well she's five, I don't know how you're doing your project, like it's just a weird, it's weird things that you just don't realize are weird, and it just falls into like, oh, it's a sweet old man thing, but it's really not, it's just really creepy and and odd, and again, it feels countercultural to everything that you're being taught about. We stay away from men, like the mm -hmm. way that teaching is, like you mentioned in the IFB, like 
it just feels like such a transgression of all of those values. No, purity and modesty and more importantly, guarding your heart. Um, I think when we use terms like girlfriend in particular, like I, I know old, old men are going to old man and they need to quit. And that's a problem outside <laughs> a whole of fundamentalism. Podcast, yeah. Um, but when, when we use terms like girlfriend, girlfriend typically refers to somebody that you have expectations of and they have expectations of you. There, there is um, an implication of consent. There is an implication of a give and take relationship. I just don't think that's appropriate between a 70 something year old and a 12 year old. So Hot take. <laughs> so for he reframed going to eat with my family as being a date and he started right. telling me what I could and couldn't wear um for this date. So I'm going to let you scan this so you can really get yeah. a good picture, but this is me with him on our date. And you're yeah. about 12 here. 12 or 13, yeah. You can see I'm wearing a fur coat because he requested he he likes his women to look classy and wanted me to wear my mom's fur coat and my mom's high heels and stockings to go on this date. And it was and, me and him and my whole family. And again, you, your parents don't have any thing on this or any like <laughs> this feels like oh you're going to borrow my fur coat. Like it, it, it there was no like weird sense about that. They wanted his money. Our church was in so much financial trouble. I, they obviously were not going to let him take me in a room somewhere or drive in a car alone with him because they wouldn't have let me do that with anybody. But I think I think they were in like they were indoctrinated with the IFB culture and the way that things are in the IFB, and I think they were scared to cross him. Do you think the primary factor there is fear or do you think the, like, it wasn't indifference to this happening? Um, I don't know. Like, do you think they saw it as like, cause, cause the implication of the implication of we really need the money. So this is okay. Is a really scary thing to hear. But then there's also like the fear and the normalization that we talked about that happens in that realm. And so, I, 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 yeah. I think it's all. I don't want to put you in the awkward position. I'm sorry. It's okay. I don't want to put you in the awkward position. I don't want to put you in the awkward position of having to determine their motives at the time. But like, well, it I've also asked. like. I've asked right. my mom, and her take on it was. Well, yeah, he was kind of weird, but he was a weird old man and we wouldn't have let him take you anywhere. We wouldn't have let him take you out of our sight. So, but we didn't really think it was anything but harmless because he's an old man. That was kind of her take. But let me tell you this story about something that happened on that date, because I think this will clarify how we viewed him as a family. So... Um, that particular day that he had me dress up in the fur coat and heels and everything, we went to this restaurant out by the regional airport and it was a restaurant I'd been to before. It was a nicer sit down restaurant on 
in the East St. Louis area. Um, we went, I think we went after Sunday morning church and the, he ordered black coffee. If you've ever been out to eat with him, you know, he always orders black coffee and his coffee was not hot enough. And he screamed at the waitress, just threatened to throw the coffee at her. Um, I don't believe I've ever seen somebody yell that much at a server in a restaurant before in my life or since. Hmm. Um, he had a temper. He did not like think he did not like being crossed. He did not like things not being done his way. So I think when you ask why did my parents allow this, it's very complicated and very emotionally twisted topic to talk right. about because. Yeah. Number one, they wanted him to give our church money because our church was in absolutely dire financial position. Number two, he had a horrible temper and you did not want to make him mad for no reason. Number three, they didn't see it as all that harmful because in, in their minds, they had been taught to idolize him and they had not yet woken up to the crisis of abuse in the IFB church. So they had been taught to see this is a man of God. This is a great Christian leader. This is a great Christian benefactor. He's just an old man. He's just, he just is the way he is. They had been, my parents were part of the First Baptist Church of Him in ministry during the Battle of 1989, um, during the Dave Heil scandals, during, they were there for all of that. So they had received all of that brainwashing as well. And the you know the rumors about the rumors about Hiles that weren't true and the rumors about Dave that weren't true and had to deconstruct all of that a decade later after this happened. Hmm. So I think there is there are so many factors to why they let this go on. Yeah. And I don't yeah, know I've... why it ended either. Um hmm. one day Anderson just Quit sending notes, quit writing letters, quit sending presents, and didn't come back to our church. I feel like you're saying something without saying something, saying that. I aged out is what what happened. So, yeah, and I appreciate you answering that because I I think, one, I, I hate putting you in the hot seat of like, what were your parents' motivations when you probably at the time couldn't? know that but i also these stories like we've talked about have happened so many times with so many different people where you go how did the parents not see this or how did this happen and i think one of the things that you just hit on that i think is so important is that it felt outside the realm of possibility that something would actually happen because that just doesn't happen which i know is you know that's that's certainly how i felt the first time i really saw an Mm -hmm. abuse case was that doesn't happen in our denomination, which silly me um, thinking that, but, but in that bubble, you, you really do. You think like, Oh, they're a little bit weird, but mm-hmm. we have to be the one that's wrong. It's not them. And yeah. um, I don't want to yeah. portray them as negligent or as money hungry. And right. which in is any way I wanted to determine and figure out is. Yeah. I think when you really, really want somebody to make a donation 
it can cloud your judgment, even if you are mm-hmm. a person with good judgment. And yeah. being brainwashed to see this person as a man of God can cloud your judgment. And I, I don't think it's one factor. I think it's a combination of a lot of very complicated factors. Right. It's almost being blinded by this to where you don't see this kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you, you mentioned aging out, which is a scary thing to think about given the context of everything. But it also makes me feel like this probably isn't, you're probably not the only person who has this type of story. Um, is this something that you know has happened with multiple people or have other people had this experience with him? I know that there are some other people. I do. I don't know how many, and I think we may hear from some more after this episode, potentially. Yeah. Very likely. Yeah. At the time that I was his girlfriend, um, I know that there was another girl because he had mentioned her to me. He said, you know, so-and-so's daughter. And he mentioned a pastor who had a daughter very close to my age, a couple months age difference from me in this city, about five hour drive, one state over. He said, do you know this girl? And he said, well, she's my other girlfriend. Um, I know about that girl. I know of someone else who I don't have permission to, to share her story, but sure. I know there is a third person. And a college friend of mine, I told her a little bit about my story. And she said that he treated her very much the same way when he was, uh, when she was a Hiles Anderson college student and he would come visit the college and that she had a very similar experience. With, well, let me ask you that. Where, where do you think is the best way? I don't want to like, I don't want to dig like 10,000 feet down into, I'm just trying to think where to segue it to without, I don't want to like tread, I don't want to like tread in the same spot, but I also don't want to leave out anything that might be relevant. I didn't want to put you in a weird spot with the question with your family, but I instantly go like, it sounds very like, I don't know. It, it just, it just, I wanted to clarify that because I, I feel like I'm the, happy with my answer. I think okay. I don't have a problem with portraying them as misguided. I only have a problem with portraying them as malicious. Right. Which I, which that's why I wanted to ask because I know you don't view, I know, especially, I don't know so much about your relationship with your mom currently, but I know like with your dad, like you don't view him that way. So I assumed it wasn't, but I knew like, Given the context of the show, I didn't want people to hear it and it feel because it, it feels very similar to like it's not, but it feels very similar to like trafficking stories it, where it's like we wanted the donation. Why? I mean, why so wouldn't it? Whatever it, happens, happens. Why wouldn't but it I feel don't like want, a trafficking story? Like, sure. No, I sure, but I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to paint something that you would later get feedback like, oh, well, you're parents did this and you feel like that's not that. So like it was half a question for me, half a question for, I know people are going to draw that conclusion and I don't want the wrong. The relationship I have with my mom is very much, I can look her in the eye and say, Hey, you made, you made mistakes. Um, Mm -hmm. And I love you and I forgive you. 
And these are what those mistakes were. And I believe you did your best. And I fully forgive you. And I understand where you were coming from. And I do not hold it against you. Let's have a great relationship now. No. Like that's what I have with her. And I have asked her about Anderson and that's her take on it is it just wasn't that weird because that's just how men act. And, you know, we didn't think you were in any real danger because we just wouldn't. Which is probably a sign of a much bigger problem, you know? Right. Like, and that's like, that's my point is it's, it's objectification in a particular way that I want to talk about. Right. If it's okay with you, I think we just leave that (laughs) because I think that's kind of a, that kind of explains that side. Um, I wasn't planning on doing that, but I think that's a perfect segue to say like, this is objectification as a, as you zoom out, Um, you were just checking your notes. Is there anything you want to make sure we cover regarding or do you want to step into that broader picture of like, I want to go, I want to look at that, at that broader picture Okay. because the, the reason there were a lot of reasons that I referenced earlier that I was never going to tell this story. I just, I didn't think it was important to tell it. I didn't want to take space from people who have experienced sexual assault within the IFB. I didn't want to feel like I was, you know, taking their airtime or taking their space or trying to draw attention to myself. But I think this really illustrates the way that grooming is seen as normal in the IFB. Mm-hmm. We know that in American society, about one in three girls and one in five boys experience childhood sexual abuse. We don't have statistics for what that looks like within the IFB. Um, I personally wholeheartedly believe that the statistic within the IFB is 50% of girls. And when you say that, are you referring to like any form of sexual abuse within? So like molestation rate, like any childhood sexual abuse. Um. And that is not based on any kind of science that I've been able to do. That is based on, I know a lot of people um, and I talk to a lot of people and I think that is enabled by grooming. I have so many other examples of grooming behavior within the IFB. This one is particularly egregious. Um, particularly kind of ick and gross, but I was objectified through modesty culture and modesty rules from the time I could walk. I was groomed in church in so many different ways from the time I was a toddler sitting in IFB church services that when a 70 something year old man wanted to call me his girlfriend, it didn't seem weird. Hmm. I think it's, it's all a glaring symptom of a huge problem. I mean, you, you hit on it with saying like your mom's take was that's how guys in that world acted mm-hmm. as like, well, yeah, duh. Like this is not abnormal. 
But it's such a weird thing that you just hit on it. Something that like keeps coming to mind through your story, which is like the IFB is both so sheltered sexually, but so rife with like sexual like tension and like just sexual aggression that like you both, you know, I mean, you both like say, Hey, women are to be pure. But like you said, literally from the time they're born, they're objectified in Mm -hmm. very clear ways, which is like, don't let your baby wear pants because Mm -hmm. that's going to make somebody stumble instead of going like, who the heck is around here that's going to be stumbling at that? You know, like that's the kind of stuff that just doesn't really make sense. And, and I think that even for the male perspective too, is like, you're told don't think about sex at all, but also sex is amazing and you're an uncontrollable animal and you need sex. Like it's such a weird world to grow up Mm -hmm. in that unless you have like to explain the, like the blender of emotions that you feel all the time. Yeah. And also guard your heart as a young girl, try not to even Mm -hmm. have crushes on boys. Um, Date to marry. (laughs) Date to marry. Women don't have sexual attraction. Women don't experience sexual attraction. Women only experience emotional love and you can have a sexual response based on your love, but women don't experience sexual attraction or visual attraction the way that men do. But it's okay for this 70-something-year-old married man to call you his girlfriend, send you all kinds of presents, and then dump you without a word when you turn 14 because you're too old for him now. Mm. Like that's – do you understand how that that played with my heart? Not that I thought – we were romantically involved. Not that I thought I was going to grow up and marry him. Although um, if it had been Tom Williams, maybe I could have. It, it, not that not that I thought I was romantically in love with him or anything, but that he was the first person who was allowed to call me his girlfriend. And sure. like, you don't think that- you It's don't a think confusing that, relationship to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. But guard yeah. your heart and don't have crushes on boys your own age. It's, it's very funny now- reframing like a lot of the teaching because like i heard all the same stuff is like girls are like men are visual like men are physical girls are emotional boys are not mm-hmm. emo- girls are crock pot boys are microwave oh mm-hmm. my god yep and um and it's so funny because now i think like that says more about you than <laughs> the women because you have to imagine it, it i was gonna say it reminds me of, like the ben shapiro thing where he's like it, actually, if a, if a girl is wet, that's a medical problem, you know. And then everyone was like dunking on him, like my wife, so who is a doctor. <laughs> my wife, who a doctor, said it's actually something that shouldn't happen. <laughs> so it's okay, Ben. Don't worry. This is not. This is how it's supposed to be. Um, yeah. It makes me think of that. Where like when I hear pastors now say like women don't want to have sex, you know, and it's like maybe not with you tony hudson but you know it's oh, like oh, anyway that was a horrible thought there's a visual let me get the flannel graph ready for that visual um, anyway um, i think it's a i think it's an example of objectification my body was held up as a as a physical object a possession of my father that would then be a possession of my husband something to want, something to own, something to buy, sell, or trade constantly throughout my entire upbringing as 
a girl child in the IFB. That is what it is to be an AFAB child in the IFB. But so were, you know, my my modesty and my purity were Mm -hmm. prizes. Um, Actually, Jack Scott came to speak at our church at a foundation conference two years or three years before he went to prison. And I remember Jack Scott got up to preach one night and he was talking about some man in the church. And I can't remember who he was talking about. Some guy in my church growing up. And he gets up in front of hundreds of people at this huge auditorium that we had rented for the foundation conference. And he said, well, Brother Carpenter told me that he would trust his beautiful virgin 16-year-old daughter with this man. And I don't know what else says that this man is a true man of God. I don't even know who he was talking about, but Jack's like, that's objectification. Um, (laughs) And also like, why wouldn't you be able to trust this person with, you know, it's a very bizarre line. Right. And it's, I think the, the Russell Anderson story is kind of a, a weird and out there. Um, expression of what was so common for me growing up in the IFB. And then layered on top of it, the financial leverage, which I think Mm -hmm. is like, to me, the really scary part is because like you already have guys who are deemed incredibly powerful just for completely supernatural reasons. And then to have like this literal like sign of wealth and power over like, Again, the majority of people making, you know, maybe 20, 30 grand a year if they're doing mm-hmm. well in the mm-hmm. IFB, um, you know, that's a that's a really scary thing. Yeah. And I think it's it's an extreme example. It's a weird and unusual example, but it's it's illustrative of how girls in the IFB are very literally things. They are treated as possessions in right. I don't know if I'm <laughs> explaining well enough. It's a weird thing to live. Um, I had a conversation with a reporter not too long ago um, who's writing an article on this kind of stuff. And she was asking me all of these questions. And I just, how do you explain to someone who's never been there what it is like to grow up believing that you are less of a person yeah. because you're not a man. How do you explain to, and this reporter happens to be a woman, and how do I explain to a woman who has always believed that she was a full person and not somebody's property mm-hmm. what it is like to full wholeheartedly believe that you are someone's property? How right. How do I make this make sense to somebody? It's like culturally – there's obviously imbalances, but it's so heightened in that world. And in, like you said, it is property where it's like you are your father's property until prop, you know you transfer ownership to the husband, mm-hmm. who then now owns that person. You know, it's like it's such a bizarre. Like in weddings, you always talk about like the you know the dad giving the bride away, but quite literally in that world, that is what's oh, yeah. happening. It's like this is mine. Now it is yours, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah. Again, it's a, it's a sign of a larger problem, I think within that 
within that world. Um, you were going to say, do you want to go into um, something? Well, do you want to hear my Bob Hooker story? Sure. I want to figure out where to play this paying people a dollar an hour to go do missions work. I feel like I lost my opportunity. Oh, yeah. I don't oh, know where it would go it naturally. Back. That, well, that's another reason that I felt like I had to go along with whatever he wanted because even if he didn't give um, my church money, he might hire me to be one of his professional soul winners one day and I could have a guaranteed job or he might pay my way to go to Hiles Anderson College. Hmm. So there was additional incentive for me to try to be as perfect as I could. I was perusing a ton of clips of Russell Anderson, which I'm once sorry. you've seen one or two, <laughs> yeah, once you've seen one or two, you've kind of seen them all, like, because he kind of hits that same, those same talking points. Poor, you know, uneducated coal miner. Now I'm very rich and I've got money. Um, that is 99%. And I just summarized his entire biography for you. Uh, <laughs> but um, one of the things I found was this clip of him talking about how he funded missions work and it's very non-traditional. And this was very interesting to me because I remember Rick Martin was such a big name, especially at um, Lancaster Baptist church. When we go to conferences or like pastors conferences, they would report these mass salvations happening in the Philippines and like this massive work going on. And so watching this clip of uh, Russell Anderson explaining his, his uh, missions giving was very fascinating to me, but uh and so how many souls uh, have been saved by the soul winners um, that you've hired um, to win souls around the country and world? Well, I began to employ people in foreign fields, mission. They, the, the people up there, I began to pay them a dollar an hour to go out and knock, knock on doors, win souls, and come back and report to my, uh, Kevin Wynn and Rick Martin. And I'll just go with their count, not my count. They've been over 21 million people. Ask the Lord to forget, have uh, been saved on there because they have bring back to their, their addresses and that to Kevin Wynn and Rick Martin. And so in the last four or five years, according to their count, not mine, I don't do the counting. They just mail me the results. It's, over, it's been over 4,000 people a day. Wow. And a uh, dollar a day is a good salary. A good- yeah, I pay them a dollar an hour. It is a good salary. And it's not, by the way. I was I looked when he said that. I like looked up like the Philippines specifically. I was like, this is like less than half of what the average person makes. But uh, anyway. I pay them a dollar an hour to go out and knock on doors and tell people about Jesus and bring them. And, uh, and they bring their dresses back a dollar an hour. That's it. It's pretty good. Uh, and that's where that so for years it's the less... It started out with five and 10, 15, 20, kept growing to where now in Mexico City, I think I sent $335,000 a year there just to take care of that and take of the, then I sent a hundred and some thousand to Rick Martin. But it was interesting watching that because I was like, oh, well, the numbers make sense now is that you're incentivizing people to go just basically be your door to door salespeople every single day. And then you're getting numbers back from missionaries, which, I don't know about Kevin Wynn and Rick Martin, but um, I know from missionary kids I've talked to that sometimes those reports are a little inflated because you're relying sometimes. on income. But I'm not going to say that about them um, specifically. 
No, I don't have specific allegations about those people either, but I did look up the population of the Philippines, um, which crossed the 100 million mark around 2010, um, which would mean if he's had 21 million people saved in the Philippines, that's over one in five. Half Um, an accounting degree is really coming in handy on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) All I do is is iPhone math any number that I pictures ever say. That's That's, kind of a lot, though. That would be big news. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I also, uh, please forgive me, I'm going to switch into a full IFB brain here, but I wonder how many of those people are baptized and discipled into a local New Testament church. Zero. I, One I just imagine of the population of the Philippines is IFB saved. Um, what's your stat on church attendance? Right. Yeah. That's always the funniest thing to me is like, we had 400 people at VBS and then like the church is exactly the same size the next week. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, we're, we're doing a weird call for discipleship now. <laughs> <laughs> this is like... Yes, you'll get them saved, but you need to get them in the church, brother. I literally, every time um, I end up telling the fundamentalists that they're not funding hard enough. You know, I spent 20 years of my life trying to actually do fundamentalism, and I thought everybody else was trying as hard as I was, and it turns out that they're not. What, that maybe maybe um, the reason of, I burned out is because I was actually trying to do. It. You were actually doing the work, yeah, um, yeah. I think it was somebody called into account. I think it was Bob. I think it was Bob Gray, but like Bob Gray had claimed a certain amount of salvations, and someone was doing the math at like how many people per day for like how many years straight would have to get saved to actually get that number, and it was like absolutely ludicrous. But anyway, funny math is fun. That's like the new girl math. It's like <laughs> funny math. That would be a fun series of posts. But anyway, um, moving into the broader culture, I know you have some stories of, um, I mean, similar or just even more bizarre experiences that have happened within the IFB. And I know for anybody who's listened to your podcast, you're a treasure trove of these kinds of interesting <laughs> stories. But uh, what are some of the stories that you were wanting to share um, Interesting in is one way to put it. It sure is. I I think the one that just stands out in my mind so much when I talk about um, this is more towards objectification than grooming, but it was such a bizarre experience. Um, and it was a first for me as a very little kid growing up in the IFB. So I was either eight or just turned nine. And Bob Hooker came to preach at our church for a conference. And he got on the topic of modesty. And he, I remember he asked me to get up out of my seat. And then he picked me up and stood me on the Lord's Supper table in front of my whole church and all of these other churches that were here for a conference. And he picked apart my outfit from head to toe and talked about how modest I was and how he'd be proud if I was his daughter. And like, 
dissected the details of the modesty of my little like little house on the prairie church dress and white ruffly socks and black patent leather shoes. And I don't think anything specifically inappropriate was said, but it was the first time I really felt like a piece of meat. And I just had this distinct memory of standing up there on the Lord's Supper table in front of everybody and seeing my future. (laughs) Just, it was the first time it hit me. This is what life is for me now. This is literally how I'm valued is based on all of these things that I'm wearing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, it was the first time it really, because it had always dressed a certain way. I had always followed modesty rules. I was raised with it. I was born into it. Um, my mom wouldn't even put me in baby pajamas cause that was pants. So it was, I had never thought of it until that moment. And then mm-hmm. it just, it all hit me at once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is something, I mean, look, there are some men in the IFB that had terrible, terrible, terrible experiences. And I don't want to discount that. But I think when you go to like the average person, like I look at my experience and then I look at like women who grew up in the same denomination and it's like, it is such a different, I can't imagine growing up a woman in that world. Like, I just can't like hearing stories like that. Cause I, I just, and, and I don't think it's any less toxic for men to learn I want to be clear on that. Like the teaching is equally like you can't be emotional is extremely toxic. And a lot of dudes have to work through that stuff. But I think when it comes to like, Hey, you got to wear a suit because you need to look your best versus, Hey, you need to not wear pants because men are going to become, you know, overcome with lust. And like, that's a whole nother ball game. Like in so, so toxic and harmful. Yeah, like as a man and especially as a white man in the IFB, nobody ever looked you in the eye and told you you were less percentage of a person, like less than 100% of a person or less of a person than that guy over there. Or getting hired and saying, hey, your wife works here. You're worth half their paycheck, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like which is a real conversation that most staff families have. Right. It's not to discount the the trauma of men in the IFB. Um, it's just that that particular trauma of being told that you are less than a person is something that all IFB women share and a lot of men of color from the IFB that just, if you're a white guy in the IFB, that's one you don't get. <laughs> As a white guy who's formerly IFB, I'll let you guys have this one. I think the the visual of you looking forward into the future and seeing like, this is how I am perceived. This is how I'm going to be viewed is such a potent thing. That's probably felt by so many people, especially women who are listening to this episode. And I want to kind of take us back to the beginning of the episode and why you wanted to share this and why you were reticent in many ways to share this, which is, you know, what we can fall into what some people call like the trauma Olympics of mm-hmm. my story's not as bad as so and so. You know, my experience was not as heavy, you know, and we always are gonna do that. We're always gonna compare ourselves. But yet at the end of the day, we're laying our head down at night and there's these memories that haunt us or these heavy things that we're having to work through or things we're going to therapy to address that are very real. 
and very hard to talk about. And so what would you say to people who maybe felt like you did over the last several years who are going, I feel like a core part of me was objectified, violated, was groomed, was dealt with in a way that I didn't deserve, especially at a young age, but I just don't know how to even begin addressing it. Well, I believe that being objectified and dehumanized, um, especially because of sex or gender, is a trauma. It does not take away from people who experienced other very difficult, very serious types of trauma for us to acknowledge that that is a trauma also. Um, Mm. It is, like you said, it's not the trauma Olympics. It's not a competition. And an individual person might have one of those types of trauma or both or both plus other things. I think we can all um, be supportive of each other. And I think, um, yeah, I think objectification and dehumanization is a trauma. And I think this also, and I didn't even, when I asked that question, I didn't even expect for things to go in this direction, but- I think this also speaks to the larger issue of pathologizing everything and needing to label everything and needing to have to have achieved some checklist to have a Mm -hmm. problem or an issue as a result of something. And it's not about changing the definition because like, again, there are things that didn't happen to some of us and we don't need to be on equal footing on, oh, this happened. How many times this But I do think the other piece is like, we're all human beings (laughs) that are dealing with a variety of circumstances, motivations, um, you know, family connections that all play a part in who we are today. And I think at the very least, having the conversations helps us work through that stuff. Like Mm -hmm. even beyond just going, hey, do I have PTSD from this? Do I have this, you know? identifiable label to put on this thing and going, did something wrong happen to me? Yes. Now what, now what do I do now? How can I have the conversation? Who is my safe community to discuss this with? And I think I always go back to that, you know, the old quote, like there's no abnormal reaction to abnormal circumstances. I think that applies so much to so many of these conversations. And I really appreciate you sharing and, you know, discussing something that I know for you, you were kind of doing that game of, is this as bad as some of these people? Do I want to take away from that conversation? And I think for anyone listening, they'd say you didn't. If anything, you've expanded the conversation to talk about some things that maybe so many people haven't been able to put vocabulary to. So I really appreciate that and respect that. And I'm thankful that you felt this was a safe platform to be able to do that. That means a lot to me. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me this spot to do it. I felt like this was the right place to tell that story. I think if I have any parting words, it might be that this also is, um, I hope this is also helpful to people who were victims of sexual abuse within the IFB, because I think my story illustrates the ways in which grooming is so pervasive and how a person could be taken in by that sort of thing. I think the one thing that I 
tolerate less than anything else is victim blaming. Mm-hmm. And I I hope it's helpful to shed light on um, how prevalent grooming is in the IFB and these sorts of behaviors are and um, how normal it can seem to people whether they end up becoming a victim of sexual abuse or not. Right. Yeah. I think that's huge. Um, I, I think that again, it, it goes back to that age old debate, but it's, is the system set up in a way where abusers can thrive? And I think the answer is an overwhelming yes in the majority of these churches, but thank you so much for sharing this for people that want to hear more from you. There happens to be a lot more to hear from you. What's the best place for people to tune in to your podcast for every week? You're kind of sharing a lot more glimpses of your story, covering some other heavy topics and some that aren't so heavy, but are just fun to talk about. Uh, what's the best place for people to do that? Uh, Leaving Eden podcast is available. Spotify, Apple podcast. We're on every podcast listening service that we know of. <laughs> Um, we're on all the ones that we can be and you can find podcasts on social media at leaving Eden podcast and um, I'm on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter music. Awesome. Well, thank you so much everybody for listening. Be sure to go check out the leaving Eden podcast. If you listen to this show, you've probably heard of it and probably already do, but if you listen to the show and you haven't, uh, you'll love the show and it's definitely I know for me, I've started listening more and more um, to episodes and I've been going back and listening to different topics and uh, I really appreciate the show. But thank you so much, Sadie, for coming on and hope it's not the last time we see you here. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.